let's say Moses saw the burning bush and talked to God, right? And then got this information. So it means that the God of the spirit of Israel wants me to do these particular things and therefore I'm a prophet. And it's like, that's all extra stuff. But just his experience of having this mystical like encounter with the divine is interesting in and of itself. And it probably has a personal significance for that individual. I would think that, that Rick would actually to... disagree with that notion. <laughs> okay. Am I right? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the question is like, do you then believe that that's sort of like doctrine and that this was a prophet of the God of Israel and that you don't mess with that stuff, you just follow whatever it is that came from that message because it was Moses and he's the prophet? Or do you take that as this idea that, oh, if I go out in the Topanga Mountains out here and I take mushrooms, then maybe a bush will talk to me and tell me something really cool about myself. If you took mushrooms and went out to Topanga Canyon and a bush started talking to you, well, I mean, I would, uh, I would do some peer review. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Soma Stories of Modern Awakening. This week, we get biblical with Rick Strassman. Yes, we do. <laughs> So I, I actually didn't know that Rick Strassman was so committed to his Jewish roots. I will say that it wasn't exactly clear based on his career as a writer, as an author. But the way that I actually connected personally with Rick was through the Jewish Entheogenic Society on Facebook. Shout out to that wonderful, vibrant, growing community of seekers and practitioners and just really, really wonderful people. But you, you also had a connection to Rick through this new book. That yeah, was... but I wanted I wanted to talk a bit about the Jewish and Theogenic Society because he was actually posting, Rick Strassman was posting biblical commentaries um, almost almost on a weekly basis uh, when I when I considered reaching out to Rick. So I did know he was a pretty serious Torah scholar. He might one might call him an exegete. He will mention um, in this episode he he is currently working on a a work of Torah commentary. So I did I did have this background, but I didn't realize just how serious the relationship between his Torah study and his research of the prophetic experience and DMT really went. Even though I had read DMT, the Soul of Prophecy. I didn't realize how deeply those roots go. Anyone who has read DMT, The Soul of Prophecy, knows that Rick Strassman is incredibly well-versed in his, in his Torah study and in his knowledge of the, the Jewish prophetic experience. Right. It, I mean, it, it seems to me like he went back to his Jewish roots in order to try to fill in some of the missing pieces of this DMT experience that weren't explained through his scientific research. Right. I mean, so I think I think the biggest one was that with his Buddhist studies, he was hearing or he was experiencing something that was quite impersonal, something that didn't have form, something that was unitive in nature. Uh, whereas the prophetic experience in the Torah is is very much a dualistic one. And he'll talk more about this later in the episode. But yeah, I mean, if if for Rick, the ultimate experience of, of truth and communion with divinity was encapsulated in the DMT experience, then an entire canon about a unitary consciousness that is all pervasive and, and, and all knowing just wasn't wasn't going to cut it. Um, and so he grew up with Judaism. And so I think he made his way back because it's it's what he knew and it made the most sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but to what you were saying before, the way that I that I really got in touch was <laughs> was once he he started doing promotion for a novel he wrote or really a work of, of personal narrative, essentially, uh, which is Joseph Levy escapes death. And so it, it was important to Rick that that we talk a bit about that work. And I'm grateful that I actually was able to make the connection through that piece because I think that narratives and works of fiction just have a way of betraying more about an author than works of even the most personal research. 
And so I was I was grateful to to hear about that that part of, of Rick's life um, and how it impacted his spiritual identity. And so you'll hear a bit about that about that work later on in the podcast. Right. So if you want a little bit of insight into the soul of Rick Strassman, uh, <laughs> pick up a copy of his book. Uh, it's called Joseph Levy. Joseph Levy Escapes Death. And this is probably coming out either in uh, late June or July. But if that's the case, then uh, please go out and pick up the Psychedelic Handbook that he recently put out. It should be a trip. Yes. And uh, here's more from Rick Strassman. You know, my Buddhist you know, community and I parted ways over, you know, the relevance of, you know, psychedelics you know, for the meditative, you know, for Buddhist practice. You know, so that gave me the opportunity to return to my Jewish roots. Mm-hmm. And I began uh, you know, studying the Hebrew Bible um, or the Old Testament. Um, and I was really impressed with, you know, the notion or the you know, phenomena of spiritual experience in the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. which, you know, phenomenologically you know, descriptively is, you know, very similar to the DMT effect. It's, you know, full of visions, you know, full of voices. Uh, It's more real than real. It completely displaces ongoing, you know, subjective experience. I began to, uh, you know, think about, you know, DMT, the prophetic state, you know, how does it work? You know, so, you know, the ongoing model or, you know, the reigning model for the biology of spiritual experience is what I you know, call the bottom up, you know, kind of mm-hmm. model, you know, neurotheology, sure. you know, the brain, you know, the brain takes precedence, uh, you know, so when you're tripping, uh, is your brain on drugs and the, you know, the brain experiences a reflex in response to drugs or meditation or prayer or fasting or, you know, whatnot, which you know, gives you the impression of divine communication. Right. It's your brain on drugs giving you that impression of speaking with God or, you know, witnessing God. This is a very uh, clinically fashionable outlook of the psychedelic experience. Yeah, yeah, it's completely you know humanistic, and even more specifically, uh, you know, brainistic. Uh, it's oriented <laughs> you know toward you know, the material you know brain in uh, you know secular human. You know, the reason you know that the brain is configured that way is you know to confer uh, you know you know some kind of an evolutionary um, advantageous experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, being altruistic, empathic, you know, creative, those kinds of things, you know, but, you know, the more I studied, you know, the message of the Hebrew Bible, you know, some of it makes no sense at all. You know, there isn't anything that confers evolutionary um, advantage to, you know, not mixing, you know, linen and wool. <laughs> uh, so um, I started to, you know, think of, a, you know, more of a top-down model, sure. you know, which I, I you know, coined, you know, theoneurology, mm-hmm. which, you know, turns the model on its head, so to speak. Um, it, you know, suggests, you know, that the brain is designed in order, you know, uh, to allow divine communication to occur. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, the, you know, the visions and the voices you know, could be seen as uh, the reflection of divine communication occurring between your know, man and the spiritual world or, you know, the deity. And, you know, DMT, for example, um, endogenous DMT, you know, be the means or, uh, you know, the medium, you know, for those contents to be displayed in the mind. Yeah, well, it, it's one of the premises of this podcast that we kind of take a, a left-handed path approach in terms of, you know, traditional yogic theory, where you have all these, like, substances or experiences that are available to us, but it's really a question of how you do them. So just throwing someone into a DMT experience, they're going to have their experience, they're going to have a lot of noise. We believe it's important to give people a context, uh, whether it comes from Eastern traditions or from psychology, in order to help to understand their experience and then use those states in a certain way where it can become valuable, spiritually relevant. Um, and I think some of the interesting stuff that's going on right now that we're sort of tapping into is this idea that there is some aspect of a shared reality, like two people can take the same substance and touch into a similar thing in the spiritual realm, whether it's energy or whether it's a certain type of being visual or phenomenon story. or being right. So there, there's there's kind of like this idea that it's not just all in the mind, that there is some kind of 
objective reality that we can touch into. Right. I think that can be the case, but you need to distinguish, you know, is it just you or is it, you know, you, you know, that you're, you're perceiving something, uh, mm. you know, which is independent of you or some you know, combination thereof. Right. You know, false prophecy is a real danger. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you could really, you know, go off, you know, half cocked, you know, thinking that what you're witnessing or apprehending is, you know, something spiritual or you know something external to yourself but it's just your mishigas that's (laughs) you know much more intense and compelling than it was before right yeah i mean my background is very much in energy studies medical qigong that kind of thing and i've had the experience many times with people uh doing energy work together in journey workspace where it's kind of like we we can both kind of kind of see and manipulate the same the same substance so there's sort of like a group verification that there's something happening here in the space because everyone's kind of experiencing it in the same way independently. Um, and, you know, there, there is kind of this process of a, you know, group reality creation field. But at the same time, it's just like like that. That's where I get excited is there's this this capacity to explore our minds, but there's also this capacity to get in touch with this spiritual reality that's kind of like independently observable, like there's some objective reality that's there. We just need to piece out what what that is and how we can get access to it and how we can all observe it in, in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that reminds me of that first you know, time I got stoned on hash in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, you know, there were the you know purple clouds coming out of the speakers, but also, you know, my friend came in, uh, you know, my roommate, and uh, you know, he got stoned. We were sitting on the floor on a Persian carpet uh, on, you know, like, you know, white linoleum. Uh, and all of a sudden, the floor gave way, and we were looking down together, oh, wow. and we said, "Oh, do you see that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the beach. Oh, you see those sandals down there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, that's the In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> yeah." And we were both, you know, flying above, you know, Claremont, California, yeah. on a magic carpet, mm-hmm. and steering it and going up and down. It was completely weird. Yeah, you know, so you know, shared hallucinations, you know, they happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. can you speak more to that? Because in my head, like, it just screams like confirmation bias, or you know, that that's the the thought that I have. But if people are experiencing these shared realities, these shared hallucinations, like, what's going on there? Are they tapping into the same frequency? Like, what's happening? You know, I don't think we really know. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the more important thing is, you know, to not go off uh, off the deep end. You know, you could have, you know, shared you know, psychedelic experiences. You know, Charlie Grobe tells a great story. You know, Charlie was in Brazil, uh, you know, doing that ayahuasca study in the mid-90s. You know, Jace Calloway, you know, was down there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they were drinking ayahuasca together. And, you know, Charlie you know, looks around and, you know, there's this big, you know, raven, you know, sitting in front of him. And mm-hmm. it, it was hallucinated. Yeah, <laughs> and he looks over, I'm at Jace, and he says, Jace, do you see that? And he said, oh, yeah, that raven. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where it came from. Yeah, uh, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, that happened, um, you know, but you could do, you know, horrible stuff with that kind of material. You know, like I'm you know, reading a book by Ed Sanders now called The Family mm-hmm. about, you know, Charles Manson. And those guys took a lot of LSD <laughs> and, you know, they had a lot of LSD, you know, shared hallucinatory experiences, but they were really dark and really sinister yeah. and they applied them in a really malignant manner. Mm. You know, so... You know, that stuff happens. You can have, you know, shared experiences on, you know, psychedelics, but, uh, you know, why, what do they mean? Uh, you know, how are you going to apply them? How are you going to integrate them? How are you going to understand them? You you know, who are you going to you know, pray to as a result mm-hmm. of having them? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, what are your guideposts, your right. landmarks, your... Yeah, that, that that's why I like to go back to, like, the, I would call them, like, spiritual sciences that come from yoga or Taoism, because there are, you know, frameworks. some some frameworks, yeah, some understanding of the way that the spiritual body works, what the pineal gland is, what it does, what the different, you know, chakras is, the way the energy moves in the body. And I think, at least from my experience, those are things that appear to be a bit more universal in terms of just like, yeah, what does it mean to feel energy at the heart, right? Or to have these visionary experiences that come through this third eye area. And it gets a little bit more, like, like I, I consider myself a, a spiritual scientist because if I see a vision on the psychedelic experience, I'm like, I want to figure out what that means, right? You know, so there's this information coming through my mind. It's interpreted in a certain way. I might hallucinate something, but I don't 
assume that it's real, but there's some mechanism behind it that's creating this vision. There's a certain like, like reason for it. So yeah, I mean, in my practices, we go back to like, what's the structure of the energy body? I don't know if, you, if you've gotten into this stuff, like, I don't think they talk about it as much in Buddhism. Um, this idea of like, you know, the yoga theory of how the chakras work and the nadis work and how energy moves in the body and how that creates, you know, altered experiences and how that ties into the psychedelic states. But to zoom out a bit, like here we come to the question of the value of dogma. Um, in any system and applying that to the psychedelic experience. I grew up with a great deal of dogma. It sounds like Rick has grown up with his own being being raised Jewish, moving into the Zen framework. You know, they, there's there's lots of <laughs> lots of of structure and structure and dogma there too. What is the value of that, and how do we skillfully carry it into our experiences, if at all? Well, you know, as you were talking, Aaron, um, I was, you know, thinking about, you know, textual references and, you know, cognitive overlay and, you know, verbal, you know, verbal references, um, you know, which is one of the things I like about the uh, you know, biblical tradition. Mm -hmm. If you stick to the Bible, you know, rather than the interpretations of it. Well, yeah, you need to, you know, differentiate between, you know, dogma and, you know, teaching. And, uh, you know, that can be hard to do. You know, like even the Buddha, uh, you know, said, uh, you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, study it yourself. You know, see if it's you know true for you. And uh, you know, my Zen teacher used to say, you know, if you don't understand it, you or you don't believe it, just you know, put it on the back mm -hmm. burner and you know, revisit it later. You know, so you know, there's a you know difference between you know blind obedience to a teacher who's you know saying this is how things are mm -hmm. and because this is how things are you need to believe and do certain things as compared to you know study contemplation being able to you know question tradition you know question dogma and authority and it is a you know fine line and the more you, you know, question authority and question dogma you know, the more you'll be extruded from mm -hmm. the organizations that you may have originally found comfort in. So true. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, um, it's easier to swallow dogma than, uh, you know, you know, to understand, you know, the teaching, you know, which is usually, you know, non-dogmatic. Uh, you know, for example, you know, Judaism, it, you know, teaches, you know, certain things. You know, but if you look, you know, carefully at the structure, you know, the process, it isn't like, you know, don't do this, you know, don't do that. It is, you know, more like if you do these things, other things will follow. Mm. If you don't do these things, other things will follow. Interesting. You know, so in a way, it's, um, you know, verbal overlay of just, you know, cause and effect. Sure. Uh, you know, it's advice, strongly worded. But uh, <laughs> it isn't like you have to believe it. You're free to believe whatever you want and you're free to do whatever you want. You know, but, you know, the laws of nature and, you know, the laws of the ethical moral world are constructed in such a manner, you know, that if you do certain things, other things will follow, which is a standard teaching of, sure. you, know, uh, you know, cause and effect. Nature of reality. Yeah. In yoga, you have yamas, niyamas, or karma, same kind of idea. I, I, I always like this idea of kind of like looking at this like a map, like we want to give people an understanding of kind of like what territory they're entering into and how they can best navigate it versus saying like, this is what it means when you have this experience, right? So you look at the Bible and some of these things are people having mystical experiences and then trying to create a framework around it or create, you know, a teaching around the experience. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I agree. You know, can you give me an, an, an example of that? Well, for for example, like I can have a, a very mystical, meaningful experience for myself on a psychedelic. What I aim to do is try to give people the tools to have their own meaningful experiences, not to tell them, well, I had this experience. So to replicate this it for is themselves. what you should do to have the same experience that I did or like, this is what it means for me. So this is also what it means for you. You know, like, like give them the tools to introspect and to really kind of like come up with their own conclusions, but some kind of structure in order to, for that for that process to be facilitated in a way that's kind of safe and effective, right? So we, we talk about set and setting, but there's also like, how do you approach a psychedelic session where it's not just, oh, here's what you might experience, go take it. 
But, you know, here's a little bit about, you know, how a psychedelic works, what it does to your mind, how you can use it and, and, you know, giving people the tools to have that personal journey, right? The path of self-discovery. How do you go deeper into that process using these, these altered states? Uh, well, you were you know, talking about you know, figures in the Bible having X, Y, or Z experience right. and trying to you know to make sense of it. And right. I was wondering what you were referring oh. to. Well, I mean, so let's say Moses saw the burning bush and talked to God, right? And then got this information. So it means that the God of the spirit of Israel wants me to do these particular things. And therefore I'm a prophet. And it's like, that's all extra stuff. But you know, just his experience of having this mystical like encounter with the divine is interesting in and of itself. And it probably has a, a personal significance for that individual. I would think that, that Rick would actually to... disagree with that notion. <laughs> okay. Am I right? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Give us the yeah, rebuttal. Yeah, you know, Moses was, you know, wandering, you know, like around, you know, Midian with, you know, Jethro's, you know, sheep. And he sees a burning bush and it's not being consumed and he's puzzled and he, you know, looks at it and there's a voice that comes out of the bush. There's a voice and it says, you know, you know, take off your shoes, you know, where you're standing is holy ground. Yeah. And I am, you know, YHVH. Yeah, you know, so it's quite constrained. Mm -hmm. It's quite specific. It's, you know, verbal. It isn't like he's, you know, having a experience of oneness or anything. He's mm -hmm. you know, seeing a bush that's not burning and he's curious and a voice comes out of the bush. You know, so it you know, wasn't like anything else happened. A voice came out of the bush and started speaking to him. It's not universal. You know, so it, it's not it unitary. Wasn't like he had to make, you know, sense of it. It was explaining things to him. And uh, it, it was completely external to him. I think one of the problems, well, well I, I think that the question is like, do you then believe that that sort of like doctrine and that this was a prophet of the God of Israel and that you don't mess with that stuff, you just follow whatever it is that came from that message because it was Moses and he's the prophet? Or do you take that as this idea that, oh, if I go out in the Topanga Mountains out here and I take mushrooms, then maybe a bush will talk to me and tell me something really cool about myself. If you took mushrooms and went out to Topanga Canyon and a bush started talking to you, well, I mean, I would, uh, I would do some peer review. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you, you know, Francis Crick, you know, for example, he, uh, you know, he took LSD and he, uh, you know, visualized the double helix, mm -hmm. you know, on the DNA. Right. And, you know, Kerry Mullis, you know, got, you know, used to take acid, you know, got down into the DNA strands and, you know, figured out, you know, PCR. You know, so you have to be a, you know, creative person to become, you know, more creative on psychedelics. You just don't take, you know, psychedelics and become, uh, you know, become creative. And I think it's the same spiritually too. Mm. Uh, you know, Moses, you know, was a unique individual, right. you know, he, uh, was a unique individual, you know, that's why he was, you know, chosen, uh, and he didn't, you know, take any drugs. He was mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, shepherding his, uh, his sheep or his, you know, father-in-law's sheep. There's a very fashionable, uh, a stream of, of research around, you know, the, the bush that he approached being an acacia um, bush, which contains uh, uh, psychedelic compounds. <laughs> what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, you know, that was an idea that, you know, Benny Shannon put out uh, in Israeli psychologist a number of years back. Mm -hmm. If you and I encountered a burning acacia bush and got high on the fumes from DMT, you know, I don't think we'd have the same experience. Mm. And uh, I, I think it, you know, hinges on your belief, you know, whether, you know, there's an external spiritual world out there or if it's all within you. That's is really a, the kernel of it all, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, are you working from a, a you know, neurotheological point of view right. or, a, you know, theoneurological point yeah. of view? You know, are the, you know, changes in brain chemistry allowing you to access externally existent material or is it just kind of stirring up within you things which are innate or latent in the right. first place which are just kind of a reflex yeah and, and this is the concept that i really 
I really like as a as a starting point for this is that there are traditions where you can learn these tools of meditation and kind of like clearing the channels. And that's, you know, maybe Moses was someone who had these clear channels, you know, just being an exceptional person as he was. People like us, we can develop our systems to become more sensitive or more clear through meditation, through introspection, through, you know, ways of living, which makes us more susceptible to having these types of mystical experiences when we do take these substances that bring us a little bit closer to that space. Well, I think we can only do so much. You know, if you read the Hebrew Bible, you know, the choice of who is a prophet is totally up to God. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has nothing to do with your own preparation. Uh, you know, Baruch, um, who's the scribe of Jeremiah, you know, he's, he's a you know, Jeremiah wannabe and he's complaining, complaining. He's you know, <laughs> doing everything he can to be a prophet. Mm. And at a certain point, you know, God gets impatient and speaks to Baruch through Jeremiah and, and says, it's just too much. You know, just 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 back off. You, you're not qualified. Uh, you know, Maimonides uh, was in a you know, pickle that way, you know, because of his you know, being an Aristotelian. On one hand, um, he said, you know, God does not withhold from the worthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in other words, if you perfect yourself, if you clear your channels, if you're virtuous, if you study, you become qualified to attain a religious or spiritual experience. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, Maimonides, you know, needed to explain, you know, the incidents or the occurrence of a prophecy or its, you know, lack thereof, especially after the destruction of the first temple. It was a bit of a, a you know, convoluted explanation, you know, the miracle of withholding a prophecy mm. as opposed to the, the miracle of bestowing it. You know, so you can only do so much. Um, you could become a better person. You could become kinder, more compassionate, smarter, more creative, uh, all those things through your know, self-development, but that isn't the you know, same thing um, as, uh, at least within the model I've been working in, as becoming a prophet. You can become enlightened. You can be a saint. Well, I don't know about you know, Christian sainthood, but... Uh, they're they're all mean, kind of loaded can... terms. <laughs> Prophets, <laughs> saints, like what does that actually mean, you know? Well, they're very important terms. They're Western terms, which we all have been raised in. And, you know, you're named after the first, you know, high priest in the Bible, uh, you know, Moses's brother. You're named after, you know, one of, uh, uh, you know, Jacob's wives. Uh, you know, the Hebrew Bible pervades Western civilization. And Absolutely. we all are uh, you know, products of Western civilization, mm-hmm. which means all of us are influenced or were born and raised within you know, the setting of you know the Hebrew Bible. You know, so I think it's you know fine, it's cool to you know step outside of it, but I think you know before you reject it and replace it with you know something else, you really need to know what it is you're rejecting and replacing. Mm. Yeah, I mean we've wrestled with this, discussed it with with previous guests. About... I continue to wrestle with it. I wrestle with it every day. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the the backdrop of Judaism or Western religion. And the main difference for me, I kind of like where I came to after my different experiences in in these realms, because I I grew up conservative Jewish and went to North Irish Jewish day school. So I was really steeped in this stuff. You know, I was reading Hebrew and studying Torah. What I came to is that there's a certain sort of like influence in Judaism and in Western religions in general, that there is just a way that things are, because God gave the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai. That's why you follow these things and you don't question them versus the Eastern traditions where it's more of a, you discover spirituality through a discovery of yourself. In some schools, that's not, that's not how it is across the board. Right. I mean, and, depending and I think, on I think the school this is of Buddhism where, and Hinduism. Where people who get into psychedelics, like they, they tend to look more at like Kabbalah and the spiritual forms of Judaism, because it's a little bit more inclusive. I And that's why I think Rick's philosophy that he developed is so renegade. It's so different from the, the sort of comforting (laughs) uh narrative that i've been that i've been given as i you know as i created some distance between myself and the dogma that i grew up with but i'm i'm called to that kind of commitment to the text integrity towards what is written in the bible and the bible itself um i don't know where i stand but 
I'm I'm curious mm-hmm. what Rick has to say. Well, so my you know favorite uh, you know medieval exegete is Abraham Ibn Ezra, mm-hmm. and you know he sticks with you know um, you know with the Hebrew Bible, and he says you know to understand what the Bible is you know really saying, you need to know Hebrew grammar, philology, and possess common sense, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much all he says. You know, when it comes to you know the law. He defers to the rabbis. Um, he said, okay, you know, the rabbis can determine issues of law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to understand the text, you know, the rabbi's opinion are just as valid or invalid as anybody else's. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's important to distinguish between the law and understanding the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can make that distinction. And if you if you just make your goal understanding the text and what you what you can extract from the text, you're freed of, you know, needing to slavishly, you know, follow (laughs) what somebody is, you know, telling you what is right or wrong. What an interesting distinction. I mean, it's completely unheard of where I come from. I mean, like in, in being someone with intellectual integrity and taking what I'm reading seriously, then it becomes incumbent upon me to, fulfill the laws and guidelines that have been set before me by the rabbis who I have to believe understood God better than I ever could. <laughs> and yeah, I, I just don't buy that. And created a code. Yeah. That's good. I don't buy yeah, that. I don't um, buy that either. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the code came with Moses, you know, but you know, look at the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. you, you know, like everything is there. You know, this may be a bit too controversial, you know, but I, th- I, th- I, th- think you could dispense with the entire Hebrew Bible other than the book of Genesis. And there and there is the documentary hypothesis theory that somewhat somewhat supports that claim that you know the 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 later stuff came after and it was it's a little bit peripheral to the central text which would be Genesis. Yeah, well well so Philo, you know the Alexandrian you know Jewish Greek philosopher. Yes. Uh, you know he said uh, you know the law is just a, a you know codification of the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Right. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Sarah, and Rebecca. You know, so if you read Genesis carefully, the law is there. But, you know, not the law, but, you know, the laws, you know, the um, the laws of nature. The Tao, essentially. Well, yeah, you know, how things are set up, you know, why cause and effect acts in a certain way, you know, why cause and effect encourages certain behaviors and discourages others. It's all there. It you know, teaches you, you know, how to negotiate and you know, how to interact with God, you know, what the consequences are of you know, certain beliefs, you know, certain actions. And it's all codified in the law. You know, but the law itself, I mean, you know, there are bait you know, bait dins, I you know, Jewish courts, court. rabbinical courts. Yeah, you know, but you don't you know, you need to decide if you're going, you know, to live rabbinical Judaism or, you know, live your own Judaism uh, when it comes, you know, to your relationship to the spiritual, you know, message in the Hebrew Bible. And I think in this, you know, day and age, uh, you're free to do either one or the other. Mm. Walk with me through this. So in this philosophy, God is 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 or is not God an external influencing force that guides the progression of nature, a sentient, a sentient. Yeah. uh, You know, God is a a, sentient force. Well, you know, in this, well, you know, I'm, you know, basically revivifying, you know, Maimonides, you know, philosophy. It isn't anything I came up with. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just, you know, kind of, you know, making it more contemporary. I appreciate Um, it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Maimonides, you know, said that the law, of nature and the law of ethics and morality have got the same creator and sustainer, and that is God. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, the laws of cause and effect, you know, were created and are sustained by God, who you can learn about God's characteristics through observing the laws of nature and the laws of ethics and morality. Right. They aren't separate. No, they have the same creator and the perfection of, you know, both of them is impossible, but that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, try to perfect them. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm being called back to this very specific point in my childhood where I had bravely 
brought forth the theory that, and and this and this hinges on the belief that the Bible is is true and and historically accurate, but that when Moses guided the Israelites through the through the Red Sea, it wasn't that God spoke to him and said, you know, lead lead the Jews here. It was that he was very aware of of the situation that the Egyptians were were coming to murder them. And that there were different directions they could move in. And, you know, he perceived from nature that the best option would be to move towards the water. And I brought I brought forth that theory in class and my teacher was just so disgusted. Like, how could you possibly assert that, you know, God didn't speak to Moses and it wasn't a, a divine encounter that then saved the Jews? Yeah. Well, you know, clearly, uh, you know, God has no mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, so God does not like speak, you know, the way that you know, we understand speaking. It's what, you know, Maimonides, you know, calls, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the word, you know, you, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's an illusion. Uh, I'm with you. you know, yeah. Best, yeah. It's, you know, the best, we, it's, you know, the best we can do. Um, it's a homophone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, it's translated differently in Friedlander's version of the guide versus the Pines version. Oh, it's a homonymous term. Mm. Um, you know, uh, you know, God speaking isn't the you know, same thing as us speaking. Sure. You know, there's a notion about prayer that you know, prayer does not change God, but prayer changes you and makes mm. you more receptive to the divine influence that's around you all the time. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, you know, God doesn't respond to prayer, but you respond to prayer, and you know, because God doesn't change, you. Know, uh, or speak or those kinds of things. I find myself angry in this moment because these are all thoughts and ideas that I had expressed in high school and were all met with like such mm-hmm. repressive, oh my gosh, I wish someone would have like taken me by the hand and, and showed me this sooner. It would have saved me so much frustration and, and, and anger towards God. Well, you know, Maimonides' books were burned by their rabbis. Which is ridiculous because it's the first commentary that we're introduced to in yeshiva. <laughs> Well, the Mishnah Torah is the first commentary, you know, but the guide, you know, you know, the guide of the perplexed right, for favorite. the rabbis was anathema. You know, it was Greek philosophy. It was Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, say that a lot of copies of Maimonides, you know, guide were, uh, were burned. You know, the reaction that you're describing, yeah, it's quite liberating, you know, to read Maimonides because, you know, he was a scientist. He was a physician, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very empirical, very common sense. Um you know, quite learned, and he, you know, really did a good, you know, job of you know melding the you know thinking processes with you know faith and tradition uh, in a way which I mean I have found you know, really helpful. It was you know seminal in me thinking about how you know prophecy works and how DMT might play a role. And to bring it all back to the very beginning, so the subject in your research done with DMT, you would not consider their experiences to be prophetic. So do you see them as being top down or or bottom up those experiences? I would say they were bottom up. You know, um well, you know one of the you know ways Aristotle understood the mind is that uh you divide the the you know contents of the mind into what he called the imaginative and the rational right. or you know, the intellectual. You know, so the, you know the Intellectual are abstract ideas, concepts, notions, beliefs, you know, mathematics even. And, you know, the imagination was the part of the mind which contained everything else. It was apprehensible material, you know, feelings and perceptions, sensations, emotions, you know, body awareness, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Those were, you know, the awareness um, of those, uh, you know, things you know, took place in the imagination, you know, this is you know different than imagination being imaginary or make believe or you know made up. It, it's you know perceptible, it's apprehensible mm-hmm. as compared you know, to the notions and the abstract ideas which you know the intellect contains. You know, so um, after you know doing my studies, it you know seemed as if the you know the phenomenology of the you know DMT experience was quite florid. Uh, you know, the visions and the voices and the out-of-body stuff, you know, the emotions, you know, the effects on body awareness. You know, those were extremely profound. The volunteers described them in extreme detail. You know, they remembered them, you know, very carefully. You know, they were completely novel and new. 
um, as compared to the intellectual or the you know the rational intellectual abstract uh, you know cognitive you know, material which was you know pretty meager and it was quite personal you know it, it was dependent on on the person it wasn't anything new it was more of a confirmation of what was already you know more or you know less in the person's mind you know so you know the information that was communicated or experienced or transmitted was personal it was familiar it was just you know more real more convincing more true more certain than had been the case before as compared to the you know phenomenological you know, material which was completely novel and completely weird the you know, fact that people didn't really come up with anything new you know no new ideas just more of a confirmation of what was already there makes me think that it was a uh, you know bottom up you know, phenomena it was their own psychology mm-hmm. which was being magnified amplified or you know made more clear as opposed to anything you know, kind of from the outside in. So in summation, the DMT experience is different than the biblical prophetic experience. Well, there's a couple of, you know, factors which, you know, differentiate it. You know, one is that I gave people DMT. Sure. And uh, in, you know, my model of the prophetic state, you know, God, through, you know, God's influence, through divine information, kind of, you know, descending, as it were, stimulates levels of endogenous, uh, you know, DMT. Sure. You know, so, you know, the source is different. Mm. That's one major difference. Yeah. And, you know, there's the whole, you know, uh, you know concept of, you know, the worthiness of being a prophet uh, and, yeah. um, you know, the preparation for being a prophet and, you know, the qualifications. You know, so if, you know, somebody wasn't qualified to be um, a prophet, you know, because of, their skullduggery or their <laughs> uh, intellectual, you know, deficiencies. You know, God, you know, temporarily made them worthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's a whole different model than you inject somebody, you know, with DMT and sure. you call it a prophetic. Sure, experience. sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's this idea of psychedelics as sort of like a shortcut to these states that normally take a lot of work to be able to access, or or, or maybe just a certain like constitution i don't know <laughs> if you were divinely chosen but it's still it's called storming heaven mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a it's a familiar term in buddhism too wow i mean what a rich and just so interesting like convergence of, of topics that i have been i have been studying and and questioning and wrestling for years and so i found this this conversation to be incredibly intellectually satisfying we are at about an hour and a half of, of runtime with you, Rick. I think the last thing that I would like to discuss is, is this upcoming book, right? Is it, it's the, it's the new psychedelic handbook and it's a handbook of protocols for psychedelic journey work? Well, you know, it's, it's a slightly misleading title. Mm-hmm. It's called the psychedelic handbook, you know, but it's, you know, mostly like, you know, psychedelics 101 mm-hmm. is a textbook, you know, more or less. You know, the first, you know, third of the book is, you know, just us, you know, like, you know, what are psychedelics? What's their history? What do they do psychologically and biologically, spiritually? Uh, the you know, second third of the book is, you know, the drugs themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it includes ketamine and MDMA. And the third third is, a, is you know, practical advice, you know, how to trip. You know, that's the longest, you know, chapter in the book is how to trip. Yeah, so, so important and poignant for this this moment of of psychedelic renaissance yeah it's a bit embarrassing and you know the <laughs> preface i did um, i go on and on about how qualified i am and uh, i was you know reading the preface and i go god you're really full of yourself <laughs> well yeah but you are and you had i mean i'm sure you know like everyone is putting out protocols right now everyone has a has a framework and it's important for you to establish your qualifications Right. You know, that's what I decided, you know, like, Absolutely. Uh, it, it's like, you know, people drop acid once and they, you know, and, you know, they write a book about, you know, how to trip and what are psychedelic drugs. And I thought, you know, you know, somebody ought to, you know, clarify things who knows what they're talking about. And I've been in this field a long, long time. I've seen the good and the bad and the <laughs> ugly, mm-hmm. and I'm under no illusions about, you know, the plus side or the you know downside of psychedelics. Yeah, and I even you know go off into you know Jewish metaphysics uh, mm-hmm. at a certain point. You know, like I apologize you know, preemptively, like you know, bear with me, and you'll see the relevance of this model. <laughs> 
and I have a really weird chapter on placebo. You know, so it's you know, kind of a hodgepodge, Couldn't but I that. think, you know, it's interesting and I wrote it and uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be coming out in June, in June. God willing. Uh, yeah, Ulysses Press uh, and you can buy it on Amazon now already. Uh, you pre-order it. So what I hear in Rick's story is super familiar to me as someone uh, who grew up modern Orthodox, someone coming from the Jewish faith, struggling with uh, not necessarily being able to find what uh, we're looking for in our spiritual self-care and our practice, going beyond the nest and finding uh, what it is that we're looking for or thinking that we're finding what we're looking for at the time and then eventually coming back and uh, sort of privileging our original faith over uh, whatever it was that we practiced along the way. Now, for good reason, I think that that Rick makes some really strong points uh, as to why uh, Buddhism and the non-dual perspective is one that is incompatible with a certain kind of Judaism. I think that there are plenty of cases out there for why it is compatible with Judaism, but I can hear this sort of particularistic integrity towards the text. Yeah, I mean, like the language of of ego dissolution and unitary consciousness and non-self is sort of incompatible with the idea of of a conversation that's happening with God. And so I think I think it's important to draw the nuance between prophecy and what Aaron was talking about in clearing the channels. Because when you're talking about clearing the channels, you're talking about specifically receiving information that's relevant to one's life, one's growth, one's patterns. Uh, maybe it's information about the universe, but it's it's something that you keep to yourself, right? It's not necessarily something that you go out and start preaching about. I contextualize it that way. But if you're talking about the difference between self-work and prophecy, I think it's just in the way it's it's canonized, you know. Really? So so you think because let, let's let's take the example of, of Jesus for a minute. Okay. Like Jesus wasn't necessarily out there preaching a religion. He was preaching a way of life. Mm-hmm. But because of historical events. He had these followers that then after the fact created a system that was built around this idea of who Jesus Christ was and what he was supposed to be it's doing. It's so funny to me that you chose the story of Jesus to, yeah. uh, to, to capture the prophetic experience. No, I want to go back to the, to the Moses example for a minute. It, it really all depends on like what you believe the Torah to be, what you believe the Bible to be, who you think it was written by and what the significance of the text is. Mm-hmm. But uh, according to the, like, according to, to what you're saying right now, you would believe that you technically believe that when, uh, you know, Moses saw the burning bush and the, you know, the voice came from within the, the burning bush and spoke to him, that that message was, you know, for Moses and that we canonized it in a way that made it applicable to the rest of, of the, the children of Israel. Well, I mean, Israel. If you put it into a historical context, you have a situation where you have tribes of people mm-hmm. and these sort of like small groups that are more cohesive. And so any messages that's coming through in that space are more likely to be related to whatever's going on for that group of people. Um, you know, you can have the same situation. I, I think this is what Rick Shockson was saying about the dangers of prophecy, because if you have like a cult mm-hmm. that is a closely knit group of people that mm-hmm. have a common vision or, or ideology and they're doing this kind of stuff and getting information, then information that comes through is going to have some relevance to that group. Right. Interesting. I mean, at the time, like I'm, 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 I'm like, sorry to like go so far in, but, but <laughs> Moses was like removed from the tribes of Israel at the time. He was like living in Midian with his father-in-law as a shepherd. He had absolutely no connection to the rest of the nation. And he was told to go back and speak for the Jews. And there isn't really that context there. Like the significance of the text, like this text may not be significant to you and you may not even believe in, you know, like in a historically accurate Bible. That's fine. But I I just think it's, it's important to draw that line of demarcation Right. Prophecy is relevant to the extent that you have a religious context to place it into. What was interesting for me is that as I was going through this process myself of trying to work with 
my Jewish background and make make sense of it in mm-hmm. the context of these experiences that I was having and, you know, different Eastern ways of thinking, I found that in Kabbalah and in rabbis that were reframing the Jewish experience in terms of spirituality and communication with God. And so there, there is this aspect of Judaism where you can find that, but you have to take a little bit of a non-traditional perspective on the Torah or the text or kind of reinterpret it in a different way in order to, to see that there. That hurts me. And I also believe it's not true <laughs> because because all the, the stuff that's that seems really stuck and narrow is also just interpretation. So it's not like you need to, like, you know, forget all of that stuff and privilege your own reinterpretation over that stuff. Like that stuff is just like it's peripheral to the to the core. I think No, I'm saying if you go back to this concept of like everything is encapsulated in Genesis, uh-huh. you can see the connection between the story of creation and what happens in Eastern traditions. Sure, and sure. That, that comes out through Kabbalah, which itself is kind of a reimagining of the Jewish text because you have these people who but are like, I, well, where is God it's involved hard. in the world? How do we reach out and make a connection to God when he's not showing up in this historical context anymore? And that's kind of how Kabbalah right. came, came to be. Mm. So it's a different approach. No. <laughs> Kabbalah is like, is like super Gnostic in its origin and it, it actually has nothing to do with well, mm. but I'm saying when, when did Kabbalah come about? It came about during the time where these Jewish mystics were looking for a way to connect with God because he was no longer present in the in the temple. I see. Uh, yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think that that relationship is really the crux of of Judaism. I think that's why, like, when we pray, it's traditionally not supposed to be a performance of of instruments and singing. It's supposed to be like a deeply contemplative practice. I think it got kind of lost in translation because all sorts of rules were created around it to protect the integrity of the ritual. But at first it was deeply personal, right? Like it's it's framed after the forefathers, you know, wandering out into the wilderness and having conversations with God. And so to that point, I don't believe that prophecy is dead and that the tools that apprehended prophecy back then and the tools that apprehended a, a, a very personal, close relationship with God by the forefathers, like our neurochemistry, our our composition as humans has not changed. And I think that we still we still have the the tools to to perceive God that way if we choose to heed that call. I think that although the tools have not changed. The distractions have have become more menacing. I think we're we're deeply distracted. We have all sorts of uh, neuroses that could have never existed back then. Just the level of variety that our brains are exposed to, like we're we're not we're not evolved for that. But I think that we are evolved to speak to God. Yeah, and that that makes a good uh, point as far as Rick Strassman's theory. Mm-hmm. So. In closing, just a really big thank you to Rick Strassman for uh, spending so much of your time. I think that was a total of two hours in this interview, um, plus the additional time he spent. That I spent, on, I on spent talking beforehand. his ear off, <laughs> picking his brain. Thank you, Rick, for your time, for your patience, for your wisdom, your contributions to this field of research and to biblical scholarship and to literature. Uh, check out Joseph Levy Escapes Death, a harrowing tale, uh, really like like stomach, what's the word that I'm looking for? Tummy turning? <laughs> and a really interesting look into, into Rick's life post-Buddhism. And also go check out the Psychedelic Handbook, which should now be released, if not available for pre-order on Amazon. Thank you guys for listening, and we will talk back at you soon. Chip Cassette Studios.